The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jacob, and it's a real joy to be with you um, to worship Jesus together. Uh, We are, as a church, uh, we pick a book of the Bible and we preach through a book, and so if you have a Bible, uh, we are in the book of Genesis. That's the first book, open cover, introductory pages right there. I think we're on page two of the Bible or in chapter two. If you do not have a Bible, we have those out there uh, in the hallway as well. Those are for you. Um, But uh, it's really great to be with you this morning. And I'm really enjoying as we are getting into Genesis. uh, It's certainly um, an adventure. And if you have questions along the way, one of the things we do as a church is we do Q&A after the sermon. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm the Bible answer man and that I have all the answers. If I don't know, um, we can consult Google together, <laughs> the great theologian. Um, or I'll just say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. <laughs> but um, if you do have questions, that number will be on the page up, up here. And then it's on the bottom of every slide as we kind of move along. Those questions come to my phone and um, I will read those. Uh, I mean, unless they're like, jokes or something like that, I, or book recommendations, I might not read those out loud. But uh, if they're questions, like legitimate questions, then I'll read those after the sermon. Um, so we are in Genesis 2. Uh, what we are doing is we're going to read verses 4 to 22, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's help in understanding these together, and then we'll jump right in. Genesis Chapter 2, verse 4, the world and everything in it has just been made. And then we read, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, And there was no man that worked the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon, and that was the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivala, and there was uh, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Uh, and onyx were there as uh, uh, stone are there. Sorry, if you know how to pronounce those words better than I do, let me know because I'm kind of making that up. The name of the second river is um, Gihon, and in the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush, and the name of the third river was Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river was the um, Euphrates. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. 
For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Let's pray and ask for God's help. God, as we look at these words and consider what it means to be made and what this world is all about and what it what exactly is going on here in this place of Eden that you've made for Adam and Eve to live, I pray that you would help us to enjoy all that you've made and to live in this world with the life of your presence with us. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, anybody seen the new Pixar movie, Soul? That's like one of my favorite movies. Uh, Pixar's got like some serious cred going on lately with Inside Out and Soul. Like they're, I don't know if they're really made for kids. Like they certainly appeal to kids because they're like Pixar movies, but I feel like they're basically like adult therapy sessions in kid movie format, right? <laughs> At the end of Soul, um, there's this moment, and I'm not giving anything away if you haven't seen the movie, um, but Dorothea Williams is this uh, jazz saxophone, right? Yeah, saxophone. She's engaging with Joe, the pianist in the movie, and kind of basically talking about, like, is this all there is to life? And Dorothea Williams relays a parable to Joe. I heard the story about a fish. He swims up to an older fish and says, I'm trying to find this thing they call the ocean. The ocean, the older fish says, that's what you're in right now. This, says the young fish, this is water. I want the ocean. And of course, if you watch it, you realize that the, the moment that it leads us into is this almost this profound reality of the little fish is looking for the very thing that he's lived in his whole life, and he doesn't realize what it is. What we live in right now is this real world of good things and our purpose for life, and yet we think that we're going to find it someplace else. When we're trying to figure out who we are and what life's all about and like, I'm like in my late 30s, and I'm still wondering when I'm going to feel like an adult because I don't really feel like I know what I'm doing. It's like, this is what it is. This is the program. This is the way we fit. This is the world that we swim in is, in fact, the real world of what it means to be an adult and to be a human. What, this, what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is very similar to this little parable that we have with Dorothea Williams at the end of Soul. We all are wondering, what is our purpose in life? What are we here for? What am I doing? Like, why do I wake up? Why do I go to work? Or why do I do things that I do during the day? And why do I go to sleep? Why do I pay taxes? All these sort of things. <laughs> you know, we all are trying to figure out, why do I have consciousness as being just a person in this world? Why do I feel things? What is this all about? That's the purpose of Genesis, really. And the very beginning of Genesis is all about helping us 
not get the period at the end of all the answers to life's questions, but to get an invitation into understanding what exactly is God's design for us here. So I really want to get into this chapter and start breaking it down. So I'm going to lay out the main point, and then we're going to start going, as you would expect, I've got three points. <laughs> but the main point of this sermon is you are made to live out of God's life. That's the main point I think we're going to be seeing here in Genesis 2. You are made to live out of God's life. I don't want to use over-religious language, but there are some categories here that we're going to kind of unpack. What does that mean to live out of God's life? What does that mean for us in our daily life? What does that mean for us and how we understand ourselves? So we're going to pick up here in verse 4, and we're going to see what it means to live out of God's life is first, that you were made to enjoy life. You were made to enjoy life. Genesis 2, verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. First thing I just want to point out here that's interesting is that all in Genesis 1, like if you have questions, by the way, if you have questions about like days of the earth and all that stuff, you feel free to uh, text me those. We talked about that stuff last week, but all of Genesis chapter 1 engaged with God's big structure about the world and creation and everything that he made. And here we have the focus shifting from the heavens and the earth to the earth and the heavens. The, the shift is going from God's big system structure stuff to what does it mean for how he relates with you and the world that he's made you in. The focus comes in on Adam and the earth. And you notice that in how it uses the name there in verse 5 and verse 4, the Lord God. So Genesis 1 is all talking about what just the word God, what God did. Now here in Genesis 2, we're talking about God's personal name, his what the Bible calls his covenant name. It's Yahweh. The, when you see it in capital letters in your Bible, that's just like Bible print language for Yahweh, uh, Y. H W H, if I have my letters right, that it's God's name that he wants us to talk to him with. And here we have verse seven, and the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here in the beginning of what God is describing of why are you made, it's critical that we see that God says, okay, I'm going to make man in my image, but I'm going to bring him up out of the dust. I'm going to make him from earth. It is, in fact, where heaven and earth meet. God takes Adam and he says, I'm going to make you to be like me, and then I'm going to give you my breath and heaven and earth meet in God's creation of Adam. That's very different from all the other animals of the world. They're all kind of like animals. <laughs> you know, they, 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 so I know that you love your dog and your cat, like that they are, are very good friends, but they're different than people, right? People are this creation of God that is heaven and earth meeting. And so then what we talk about here in the rest of this, these verses is God makes man in his image. And then he says, I want you to live in my house with me, right? I want you to be my roommate, right? And that's why the title of the sermon is a place called pleasant because Eden literally means pleasant. Like if you were to, we wouldn't necessarily, I don't want to get into the details of who's getting invited over to whose house, but if you're invited over to somebody's house, like their house reflects their personality, right? Like 
maybe you're embarrassed, but it needs to be some more cleaning. <laughs> or I wish that I had different, like for me, like I have wallpaper still up in my house that is atrocious. Anytime I have a Zoom call and somebody's like, what's that yellow wallpaper with the pink flowers on it? It's like, bro, I got to tell you, not my choice. <laughs> so we can't always control everything about our house, but our house reflects our personality, doesn't it? In a certain sense. What God then begins to do is he creates a house for Adam to be his roommate in with him. And the big religious term for that is called temple, right? God makes a temple, his house for Adam to live with him in, and the temple, this house reflects what God is like. So I can go over a couple slides here because I, I just wanted to put out that this Eden was the very first temple, and I'm not trying to do like Bible, you know, like Bible drill stuff. But what happens in the rest of the Bible is God is continually building a house to reflect his personality for his people, and it starts in Eden, not later on after everybody's messed up. God starts it now as a way of telling us, this is what I'm like. So all these connections to what Eden looks like is reflected later in. So Eden's entrance is on the east side, which faces the sun where life comes from, right? Eden faces the sun. Um, God walks back and forth inside Eden with Adam, right? It says that he walks with him in the cool of the day. Well, that's, that's how the temple and the tabernacle are described, where God walks back and forth with his people in the Old Testament. The lampstand, um, you, know, you, you know, the menorah for uh, end-of-the-year stuff, that's designed, the, the, the architecture or the, the, the making designs of that are to look like a tree, right? It has two branches and then it has branches out from that to look like the tree of life from the, from the Garden of Eden. The trees, um, it says that God made pleasant trees. Did you pick up on that? <laughs> they weren't just like poplar trees, <laughs> you know? <laughs> there are cedar trees in the, in the temple. They're made to be like cedars. And then here we have fruit that's mentioned in the beginning of Genesis. It's fruit. Like, so later in the old, uh, when they make the temple and the tabernacle, there's pomegranate, pomegranate fruits that are woven into the, to the garments of the priest and they're carved into the walls of the, of the temple to reflect the fruit, the lusciousness of the Garden of Eden. Here we have four rivers that flow out from the Garden of Eden. This is a pretty standard across the ancient world, but it's interesting that it mentions gold and onyx, right? It's like of all these things like, well, this river had the good gold in it. That's because that was the river that was the good gold was what was used in the building of the temple. They're like, oh, look, that's where the gold started back there in Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if you touched it, you died. <laughs> Did you pick up on that? And here, what happens when you presumptuously touch God's ark in the Old Testament? You've ever seen Indiana Jones, the greatest lost ark? You know what happens, right? Your face gets melted off, right? <laughs> and um, so, and also, by the way, Ezekiel 40 is another place where the temple gets used and waters of life flow out and cover the whole world. I didn't cover this uh, on my slide here, but if you're paying attention, you're going to notice some very interesting phrases from the New Testament get used to describe us, right? The Spirit comes in and dwells us, and what happens? The rivers of life flow in us, right? When the Spirit indwells us, what happens? We produce fruit for Jesus in our lives. When the Spirit comes into our lives, what do we become? We become pillars in the household of God, just like these gigantic, wonderful trees, right? What, 
we, um, we are seeing here in Genesis the roots of images that are then used to describe our lives in Jesus now. So you guys still hanging with me? Okay, I, I'm not trying to like get Bible ne- Bible alert nerd stuff. Here in the middle of God's house, the centerpiece is God makes Adam and he places his icon, the image of God. This is what God is like. He makes Adam and he says, I want you to be here. And humans represent God's divine presence in the world. In the ancient world, when you think of like, you think about pagan deities and like icons and stuff like that, you think of this wood carving or clay carving or whatever that's put in the middle of the temple, like that's the centerpiece. And then in the ancient world, what would you do? Humans all served to make sure that that centerpiece was appeased and the gods were happy. But when God makes his world, he makes humans the centerpiece. And he says, I don't need you to serve me. I don't, I don't need you to serve me and make me happy. My house is to help you enjoy my life. Like, so all these things we were just describing, this is a luscious house that God has made for us to enjoy and delight in. Like, that's why we have all these different colors in the world. And I, I apologize to the colorblind among us that can't quite see all the colors around us. But that's why God's made a world that's so full of colors and life, sounds, different octaves that we can hear, taste, different tastes that we can enjoy, sense smells, all the five senses, you get the sense that Eden was potent. Like, have you ever been around trees when they're like just full of smell from like the fruit? Like that's what you're supposed to get the sense of like, man, this is overwhelming with how much life and goodness there was in God's world. So when we get to this stage of life right now, where we've been at this whole pandemic thing for like two years. I don't know if you're like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I, I feel that right now. I'm like, as a pastor, I'm like, uh, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Like my gauges for understanding who I am and what I'm doing with life, how I'm supposed to engage other people. Um, I'm not sure if you feel that with just general things in life. Like, what am I, what am I doing? Maybe that's one of the blessings of the pandemic for us is that we get the noise kind of reduced a little bit. And what I think Genesis 2 invites us into is we need as a part of our enjoying of life to be enjoying the world that God has made us in. I know that I keep hammering this over and over again. As I feel like I've said this several times in the last six months or so, probably because it's been my own spiritual life and reflections. The point of your life is to enjoy the world that God has made you to live in. So a couple of years ago or six, 18 months ago, we preached through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I can just throw up a couple of Ecclesiastes verses here. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. And then Ecclesiastes 8.15, I commend joy for man has no good under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful. <laughs> This is not what you would expect to find in the Bible, according to some traditions, right? Hey, here's how you get really happy in God. Cook a really good steak. <laughs> Make some good potatoes and have a really good drink with it. And raise your glass to the king and down it. That's what the Bible is telling you to do as a part of enjoy- what does it mean to be alive? 
And by the way, the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're wondering, how does the book of Ecclesiastes fit into this? The book of Ecclesiastes is basically somebody saying, I'm going to write some poetry about the first few chapters of the Bible. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing. It's reflecting on the first few chapters of Genesis. That's why it fits in. God's house reflects who God is. And God is a God of extravagant enjoyment and delight. He made you to be like him, to be able to enjoy the world that he made with him. Like that That's the point of what we see here. That's actually the point of the movie Soul. Almost as though God's written this into who we are and how we need to function. Okay, now we're going to get verse 15. You guys still cool with me? Okay. God's made you to enjoy life as a part of what it means to be who you are. The next thing we're going to see, God made you to need life. Verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you've ever ever heard these verses preached before, you know that when it says you shall surely die, it's a double negative. You shall die, die. Not like, you know, like you're going to die, kind of like get sick, and then you're going to come back. It's like you're going to extra die, like you're going to die, and then I'm going to kill you again sort of thing. <laughs> so, But here we have, again, to go back to that temple idea that I was just saying, the whole temple thing. Ancient world, temples have, they, they reflect the character and the personality of the God that you worship. And then what does every temple have? Has a priest. So here we have Adam being said, verse 15, to cultivate and keep it. That word, those words there are used throughout the Old Testament to describe the work of the priest and are often translated to serve and guard. So what priests are later told to do in the temple of uh, Israel Adam is originally told, serve the Lord and his purposes for this place and guard it. And what does Genesis chapter 3 tell us? Adam failed to be a priest. (laughs) He didn't guard it. He should have killed the snake or whatever, you know. He should have guarded the garden. But the point is God made Adam to guard and keep his temple, to keep it free and living. Now, about these two trees... Um, it's interesting as I engage with my non-Christian friends, kind of like the mythology related to like, what are these trees? What do they represent? Is there some sort of like undertone of, you know, like hidden secret stuff and all that stuff? They're very basic. I don't think there's anything magical about these trees. Just so you're like, what did the tree of knowledge of good and evil look like? Did it, was it like a tree with like black leaves on it or something like that? Or, and the tree of knowledge, a tree of life, was it like gold leaves on it? I really just think they were regular trees, and God just said, "Here, kind of like any parent, like here's the line, this, not that. I, I don't think there's anything magical about the trees. It had more to do with what God said about them. So the tree of life, what does that mean? Tree of life, generally through the rest of the Bible, it's associated with life and healing and replenishment. There's a supernatural element to it. Like the tree of life would have had, of eternal life would have been more life-giving in a certain sense than other trees. But that's supernatural, again, not magical per se. Um, and then the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Bruce Walke has this a comment. It is 
uh, the, the phrase knowledge of good and evil is a mannerism for all moral knowledge. It is the capacity to create a system of ethics and make moral judgments. And he goes on to say, unless we know everything, we can only know relatively. Unless we know comprehensively, know everything, we cannot know absolutely. Therefore, only God in heaven who transcends time and space has the prerogative to know truly what is good and bad for life. Therefore, the tree represents knowledge and power appropriate only to God. So what this, these trees represent is Adam and Eve, you are made to live in this middle spot of depending on me for life, but not determining what you are. Like you depend on me, but you don't get to tell, you don't get to determine what's good or evil. That's something that we don't have the capacity to do. We, we don't have the capacity to determine what's good and right, write our own version of the Ten Commandments. Because, for example, I don't know everything that could possibly ever happen. God does. And so he has the ability. It is his right to tell us what is true and right and what is wrong. Now, we're going to get into what happens when they touch that tree next week or in two weeks. We're going to wait on giving into that more. What I want to draw your attention to is here in verse 15 to 17, we have two elements of worship. That's what Adam's drawn into. Two elements of worship for what it means for Adam to be alive. He said, God says to him, here's the tree of life to enjoy and to, uh, to enjoy and live by. But here's the line. You don't do knowledge of good and evil. That's not your, that's not where you go. So you have here God's provision of food for him and his word for Adam to obey and the line that he doesn't cross. So here we have in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of eternal life, submission to God's word and depending on God's word. There's almost like a pattern here. John, Jonathan Gibson wrote a book on worship recently, and he lays out this pattern, which I think is very helpful for us to see. There's a call to worship to depend on God through God's word. There's a response by faith and obedience, love and devotion. So eat this tree, uh, eat from this tree and not that tree. And then there's a fellowship meal, a union and communion with God himself, right? So there's a call to worship by God's word. Come to me, enjoy this, enjoy this and not that. There's a pattern for how we engage with worship. There's God's word and a direction which is, frankly, how we have designed our worship services. If you're wondering, like, how did you guys design, design your worshipers? We, from here, all through the Bible, you kind of look through and you see this pattern. God calls us. He wants us to be with him. And he wants to give us eternal life. In fact, that's why we also do communion every week. Because God gives us a meal that he wants to celebrate with us. But he also wants us to obey his word. And here, here's the line. You, you don't get to tell good or evil, make it up for yourself, obeying and submitting to God's word. That, that's a very simple pattern for how we've designed our worship services, because here, just like Adam, we are created needy. Adam was, this is fascinating, feeling need is not bad. Like, you thought about this? God made Adam, who was like, I mean, I don't know who you're like, you know, your peak human physique is, or peak human, I think of like Thor Bjornsson from the, from Iceland, like the dude's a beast. I mean, it's just 400 pounds of just 
pure muscle. Just a guy that's just, I think of Adam being kind of like him, just a huge beast of a person. (laughs) And yet God made Adam needy. He made him hungry. He made him out of the dirt saying, I need to eat something. And God providing it for him and God's provision for him is to say, you need to depend on me and and eat the things that I provided for you. We're made needy, which is why when we come to worship, we need God's word. We need God's word to direct us and fill us. That's why we have worship, uh, reading God's word at the beginning of the service. We have God's word just read for us, independent of God's preaching for it it, in the middle of the service. And we hear from God's word and we sing and we receive God's word when we take the Lord's Supper together. We are needy people. And it's okay to be needy. That's the very nature of being a believer. It is why um, I think for us in New England, one of the best things we can do in our witness for Jesus is just saying, I need, and that's okay. That's why we're a community of people who are needy, right? We have a benevolence fund that we highlight regularly. Needs come up. We're happy to meet those. We are needy people. We, we really just need God's word together. That's a part of the simplicity of our worship as well. I'm totally cool with other churches doing higher production. For us, it really works well for us to be simple and focused we just sing God's word. We enjoy God's word. We fellowship with God at his table. It really is about, we want to make sure the focus is on Jesus. That's, just, that, that's what we're finding here in Genesis is that we are made to be needy and God loves to provide for our need. You guys cool? We're going to move on here. Final point here. We are made to share life. So we, have, we are made to enjoy life. We're made to need life. God made us needy. And then here we have, we are made to share life, verse 18 to 22. I want to read this story for us because I think it's critical for us to hear this. The Lord said, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So, like platypus. Named platypus. I don't know why, but that's why. The man gave, uh, gave names to all living creatures, while all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, to the every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out of his ribs uh, out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man here we have we're going to talk about this more next week the creation of man and woman made in the image of God Eve the formation of Eve out of the rib of Adam what I want to focus in on here is the reality that it was not good that Adam, the man, he's actually at this point not named quite yet, is not good as an image bearer of God that he is alone. And in assessing the whole world, nobody else is fit for him. So then God creates in this miracle of this removal of a rib, and I I don't know the details of how that happened. But here we have another image bearer that comes, a female, a woman to image God 
on her own that then completes the image of God and not being alone. I want to, I'm going to say this again next week, but I'm going to say it here. I want to push back against a hypersexualization of this passage. I want to push back on this sense of, here's how, here's how I've heard this preached. Adam was alone, just a poor guy. He just needed a date. And then here comes this girl. Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. Look at her. Isn't she so amazing? Look at how beautiful God made woman. And here's this lump of a man over here. And that's not what this passage is about. This passage is not sexualizing the male-female dynamic. It is saying Adam is fully in the image of God on his own and yet incomplete because he does not have somebody to share the image of God with. Eve is fully created in the image of God and fully autonomous on her own without the need for a man, and yet she needs to share the image of God with somebody else, so she then is created to share God's image with Adam. The sharing of God's image is essential to being human. The marriage stuff comes later, right? That's why I paused us at verse 22, because I wanted us to focus in and say, for especially for our... um, are single and celibate members of the church, it is essential that you hear from us. It is important that you are totally created in the image of God and can live out the image of God with other people to share God's image without feeling like you're second class because you aren't married. Marriage is a way of creating this this home that then flourishes more life for others. It's a covenant bond to that need to share life but it is not the essential element of what it means to be created in the image of God. Male and female, you are made without regard to like having to do the whole, talk about the whole sex and marriage thing. You are made to reflect the image of God in community with other people. I want you to hear that from this passage, right? American evangelicals have really gotten weird about this stuff. And I'm trying to help us see Adam is fully imago Dei, created in the image of God without marriage. Eve is fully imago Dei, she is created in the image of God without marriage. But they are created for each other in community. I think <laughs> there are loads of ways that we can reflect on this as a church. What does it mean for us to witness to the dignity of men and women as fully made in the image of God, without having to talk about marriage and sex as a church in our culture and climate right now. Where clearly, I think everybody would agree, things have gotten a little nuts. <laughs> like, without being like malicious about that comment, I'm just saying things are nuts. What does it look like for us to then say, we value our people and our neighbors so much that we are safe for men and women to be around without it being like King's Cross is the place you go to find a spouse. (laughs) King's Cross is the place where you can go and not have to worry. Is somebody going to try to get me on a date? Or that the single and celibate among us are going to feel like they are not as valued as all those married people are. Now, clearly, we've got a bunch of families and married and all that stuff in our church. That's good. That's not a problem. Obviously, 
means there's a lot of kids to manage. <laughs> Which anybody who's been here knows we just got a lot of kids running around. That's fine. But the emphasis being on a safe place where people can reimagine what it means to be human without all that trauma going on. Through the history of the church, people have tried to go back to Eden to recreate this image over and over again. That's where the whole practice of monasteries comes from. Monasteries are this attempt to go back and create an Edemic type of life. And there's two different types of monasteries or uh, monastic orders that come out through the life of the church. I just want to point out. The Eastern Church, they would create a monastic order next to a city, but it would be separate. It would be out in the countryside. It would be distinct away from the city. We are not like those people. We are God's people, and we're separate. And uh, some of you know, uh, one of my favorite kind of history people is uh, St. Patrick. My third, fourth son has uh, Patrick as his middle name. He, led, he started the Celtic mission. And the Celtic monasteries were very different. They would set up shop right next to the like If you had, you know, Manchester, it would be right here. And they would set up their, their monastery to be an ordered version of life that they were inviting their neighbors to come in and be a part of. So they, I'm not going to get into all the details, but they had like, you know, guest houses and all this stuff. They were all kind of ordered, but they was all with the invitation of here, come and live in a life that reimagines our humanity according to the way God made us to live. But not because we're better or distinct from you, but because we're beside you. I think that the, our Celtic missionaries from a thousand years ago are a great model for us to think about. And I think it's how we walk as a church. I don't know if you remember, we are meeting in a recovery center. We are not above. We are beside and alongside our neighbors. And that's a part of the reason why we're very much committed to being here. We live as a community inviting our neighbors to the, who need to share life. It's made and encoded into our DNA of how we live, what it means to be human. We live not perfectly. <laughs> I will say I yelled at my kids in the parking lot before we came in here. So there's no way in which I'm saying like, this is a place where I'm perfect. Let me show you how to do it. This is a place where we come and we were just like we were saying, focus in. We were invited by God's word to see who he is, to be changed by who he is, to be a community inviting other people beside us to see who this great God is. Let me close with a small meditation and then we will continue to go and continue our worship. As we've talked about this garden, I think of another garden later in the Bible where the new Adam who will fully obey God's word at great cost is encouraged by angels who walks up another mountain to a tree of death where he knows the full extent of good and evil and dies to turn that tree of the knowledge of good and evil into the tree of life for us. He is put back into the earth and becomes dust effectively. And in being treated like dust, he comes out of that grave, the new Adam with new life for a new world in him.
And the first thing he does is he he commissions women to be his apostles of the new message of his reign to his brothers who are cowering away in the closet. Jesus is the one who completes what Adam and this picture failed to do and invites us to be members of his temple, of his body, of his church, by finding new life and living out God's life through him. So let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this and considered what does it mean to be human, I pray that we continue to have our imaginations captured by Jesus and that we would be fully human in him and to live out his life, to live out your life and being people that are made new in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.